You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. It's not my place to tell him to stop. Like, I care for him an awful lot. And if I, if I really saw something, like, obviously damaging happening, but also I was living the same life with him, you know, and... And I was coming away feeling great and being able to stop and come back to my my girlfriend back home and 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 seeing all my friends and you know it was it was a lot different and he went for a really dark stage I think. Well, I am Ben from Royal Blood. I play the drums in the band. There's only two of us. The other guy, Mike, he's the singer and bass player. And he's a great pianist and magician. Uh, we're on Warner Brothers Records, and our album's called Typhoons. It's our third record, and it's out on April the 30th. latest album Typhoons is an evolution of the vintage rock sound that first brought them to prominence with their 2014 self-titled debut. Indeed, drummer Ben Thatcher might be right about his bandmate Mike Kerr being a magician as together they create a sound that's bigger than the two of them. Their second album built on these strengths with a surplus of chunky Led Zeppelin-like riffs, but their third has a dance edge to it. To describe this new sound, Ben coined the term AC Disco. More importantly, there's a raw truth to the lyricism. Mike now writes about the drawbacks of their quick ascent to fame and the troubles that can come with indulging in that rock and roll lifestyle, struggles that even Ben, his bandmate and good friend, was unaware of. But before we hear about the troubles that were brewing in Mike's life, we talked to Ben about karma times, growing up in a loving Christian family and meeting Mike in their local music scene. So I understand you grew up in Brighton or maybe Hove. I got married in Surrey. And the wedding reception was in Sussex, so it's not quite that coast, but it's that beautiful part of um, the south of England. Absolutely. So what was growing up where you were like? Well, both Mike and I grew up in very similar circumstances. We both have quite big families. Mike's one of five. He has four sisters, and I'm one of five as well. I have three sisters and one brother, and both our families... You know, we grew up going to church down the south coast and we lived right by the, the beach in small villages. And there wasn't a lot to do, to be honest, down there. Mm. Music was something that we would play in church. For me, cutting my teeth was playing in front of 500 people every 
every week at church. Mm-hmm. Not really the music that um, I liked, but it built my confidence and my ability in playing in front of people. And so when it came to playing at college, in like college bands and through my teens, like playing to small groups of people wasn't a thing. It, I wasn't afraid of that. I didn't mm. feel embarrassed. I didn't feel nervous. It was just kind of, I, I, yeah, I knew my ability to do those things. I think that really showed when me and Mike met because we were real confident in what we could do and we had crazy taste of music both of us you know we liked everything and we would try everything yeah so growing up we would just be trying to get any gigs we could around our local area and just performing in front of our mates yeah I've heard some interviews where Mike has mentioned Christian camp but it's always like he just says Christian camp but let's not talk about that <laughs> um, so you also went to Christian camps yeah. I went to Christian camp as well <laughs> yeah I mean my my whole family are still Christians and my dad was the pastor of my church Ah. and my, all of my um, brothers-in-law, they all played in the worship band and they had a band together. They're a big Christian rock band called Delirious (laughs) and they used to, you know, tour America and tour the world really. So um, I grew up kind of watching them do that, but I'm like, the one in the family that's taken a step back from from all of that, which is has its issues, but mm-hmm. um, but I felt it was the right thing to do, and it's what I believe in. So you get that whole you're playing the devil's music. No, my family are really cool. They're really supportive. <laughs> um, it's it's more the other way around. I think they're playing the devil's music. <laughs> well, there you go. So, what was a perfect day like for you as a kid? Perfect day. Um, I really love football. Football's massive, obviously, in the UK. And mm-hmm. as a kid, I love running around and playing with my mates d- down at the park and in the back garden or whatever. And there was a, um, just really good memories of that. And my my mum, who was like, was a second mum to all of my friends and who would um, mm. cater for them and make sure they were fed. And they were good times. Soccer mum. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So is there something you remember from your childhood very fondly in relation to music? Um, When I was six months old, that's when, I mean, I don't even remember it, but I've got pictures of me grabbing um, chopsticks and uh, getting the drums, the pots and pans set up around me. And that was before I could walk. And then my parents weren't very musical at all, but, but encouraged me because I think they saw that I really enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. and my brother was really into music. And so I got like those toy drum kits growing up. I had a few of them. And I got my first royal drum kit at the age of six. And that was a birthday present. And uh, yeah, it's given to me by a family friend. And that was when every birthday after that would be all my friends coming around to band practice. That's what we would do. <laughs> so it was either soccer or band practice. Yeah. You didn't really have time for anything else. Not really. It was the two things that I was, yeah, really into. And and, and church was the other thing. Because church takes up a lot of time. It's your whole Sunday gone down the drain there. 
I know. I hear you. I lived in a conran <laughs> for six years. Yeah, there we go. So we speak the same language. So, what's a memory for you of your childhood that's kind of unpleasant or you know quite upsetting? I don't really have any. I was so blessed as a child with such a great family and such great friends. You know, I love them to bits. Although growing up now, I've kind of done my own thing and taken a step back and made some decisions for myself. I don't regret anything that happened to me as a kid. Mm. Actually, it's given me the knowledge about it, to be honest. Stepping into a church is a massive thing for me now because I grew up having to do that every week. But it's not until I really was in in the band and got to tour the world is when I was like, well, it, it, <laughs> life in, is bigger than this little town that I'm from. And a lot of those people, you know, they go on holidays, but they don't leave that, that little village. And I've been able to travel the world and experience so many different life experiences mm. and taken my initiative to work things out for myself a little bit more. Like you said earlier up the top there, you grow and you evolve as people, both of you, isn't it? And it's such an amazing opportunity when you get a chance to travel and also when you do that with your best mate who's from a very similar background mm. it it's not like you're doing it on your own and you're the the lost boy out there yeah. you know we both evolved together and both have very similar views now and he's he's like a brother to me we get to travel the world and make music and play to thousands of people and it's just an incredible journey that we've both been on together I know Mike talks about being young and rocking out to Elvis's greatest hits as a child. What for you was that moment where you thought, wow, this music, this is transcendental. It can really take you somewhere. One of the first things I remember me ever hearing was Red Hot Chili Peppers Under the Bridge. And I would have been two years old. My brother would have been 14 he bought that record. He played the bass, so he was really influenced by the bass playing on that record. And he would be jamming along to that. And I remember running up to his room at four years old and just he had a strobe light, I remember, and he was playing bass and he had the strobe light and he had the, the long hair and he was just jamming along. And I, I wanted to get involved, but obviously I didn't have drums or anything, you know, four years old, so I just grabbed a tambourine and just started like, just going crazy with him and it was yeah that's the time that I remember really well and the another time musically I remember is when I first got into rock music and it was through like Kerrang and MTV and I'd get my mates to tape it for me and it was when I first heard Smells Like Teen Spirit and I used to replay that that video is so good and so energetic and it's just people jumping all over each other and as a as a kid I would just get all the cushions from the sofa on the floor and be crowd surfing and jumping, stage diving. And it was just, yeah, just so much fun. And I remember that's when I first saw Dave Grohl and seeing him, the way he plays drums and his head banging and his hair going everywhere. And yeah, I was really attracted to that, that, that feeling. I can totally see you in that moment as well. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so you met Mike when you were teenagers, like you said. So he was about 14, you were about 16? Yeah, yeah, yeah. around that. And did you meet through like church camp or church or did you meet through bands? We met through bands. I was at college at the time. My first year of college, so I'd been 16, yeah, 16, 17 years old. I was in like loads of bands at that time because I was just wanting to be in every band possible. And I was playing in a band and he really loved the band. And I got chatting with him. The next time I saw him, he was playing a battle of the bands and I was just in the audience. When I saw his band play, I just loved the energy coming from from them. Mike was on a guitar <laughs> and they were playing this weird funk rock music, I guess. It was just mad. I remember talking to him afterwards and being like, I would love to be in this band because it just made me feel so good. And I was like, well, they've already got a drummer. So I was listening to their music on MySpace at the time and bought a guitar, told them that I'd just come up with all these parts for the, their songs. I just turned up to one of their band practices and just started playing and they let me in the band. I didn't really play guitar very well, <laughs> um, but I had a good energy. And I think that's all we wanted at that time. We played some crazy gigs. I think actually I covered for the drummer mm. one time before mm -hmm. that um, when the drummer couldn't make it and I played and I, I just loved it. And But then I was in the band after that attempting to play the guitar um i think when when mike talks about you at that stage he he seemed like he was in awe of of of, of you just like of the way you were drumming and the fact that you were in all these various bands how many bands do you think you were in at your most i was hopping from band to band there was probably a time when i was about five <laughs> bands at the same time and were they all like different bands like playing weddings and that sort of thing no, no, it wasn't wedding bands. That I mean, if we're counting them, then it was way more because that's what that's how I started earning money was drumming in wedding bands, and I I was part of uh, an agency that would send me off the here and there. But yeah, just my own bands. I was yeah about five. Yeah, of them. and were you also like playing in bands that were like all over the place in terms of genre, or were they mostly kind of rock bands? playing a particular kind of rock no all over the place i was in a a soul band for a while um with these amazing singers i was playing in like an indie band like a disco <laughs> band yeah it was all over the shop really i wasn't really playing any rock music yeah like heavy stuff it wasn't until royal blood is when that kind of came in so i guess then you guys sort of um we're both doing your own thing and, and Mike ends up in Australia. But then, um, and then when he returns, you pick him up at the airport. That's right, yeah. And so you guys are pretty tight already. Then you both decided to be in a band together. Then you became Royal Blood. And it was because you found the sound with just the two of you? Yeah, kind of. It evolved really. It wasn't really called anything. It was, I think, it was called like Zilla or something like that. Or I, I can't remember the name yeah. that we called it. But it was me, and it was a guy who played guitar in what was Flavor Country, then became Hunting the Minotaur. And then I came back on drums for a bit. And Mike, who was still playing a keyboard at that time, I got another gig playing for this up and coming. I would say pop artist, mm -hmm. and I knew Mike was out of work 
you know, it's like 50 quid a, a session or whatever, come blag the bass for a bit. And so he got a bass and he popped along to that and was playing. And then we both got uh, sacked from that gig. <laughs> Mike just fell in love with the bass really from then. And then the guitarist had a busy job couldn't turn up to band practices a lot of the time. Then Mike tried to do both, and that's when he came up with this with this bass sound that he and it was massive. He was covering both the guitar and the bass. I was in so many bands at that time. I didn't mm-hmm. really want to be in any more bands. It mm-hmm. was just taking up too much time and money for me. So I was doing a lot of the wedding things. You know, Mike was two years younger than me, mm-hmm. so he had that kind of time to do that. But then he decided to move out to Australia and was working with a guy out there. They had a few shows. And then, yeah, Mike kind of came up with the, the uh, some of the first, the skeletons of the first songs and was sending them to me back in England. And then he was out there for about nine months and then came back and I picked him wow. up and we went to our first band practice. So at that point, you guys were like, we have these songs and you didn't necessarily know that, oh, we're going to be like a two-piece like Jack White or anything. It was more like, we'll figure it all out. Yeah. Getting hard to sleep, but it's in my dreams. I'm just killing me, trying to figure it out. Nothing better to do when I'm stuck on you. I'm still in here trying to figure it out. When we first played together, it was like, we don't need anyone else. It sounds huge. We've got these three, four songs. Let's go down and play an open mic night down the road. And we just rocked up there, put the drum kit up, and we played our first show. First, they couldn't even get gigs as a hard rock two-piece. They had to crash open mics. But in a short span of time, the musical heroes, Dave Grohl, Jimmy Page, Lars Ulrich, would all profess themselves fans of royal blood. Putting their song Figure It Out on one of the music streaming sites was what kicked things off for them. We very quickly got a publishing deal. Mm. We had no idea what we were doing. We met a guy called Phil Christie who gave us a publishing deal, which gave us more money than we had ever had in our lives. It gave us enough money for us to quit our jobs for a year. And we were like, let's make this the best year of our lives. Let's get into the studio, write more songs. And during this time, we got our management, we got agents, Mm. and we created this massive buzz around Royal Blood. Later that year, we released Out of the Black on on radio, which was a four-minute song that was, you know, quite brutal for radio, especially Radio 1, which is where we got our first play. All of a sudden, we got some shows and people started showing up to them. And it was, that's where the whirlwind started for us.
it just then progressed and progressed and we released our first record, which we didn't expect anyone to hear. It was demos and it went to number one. And then the next thing we knew, we were on the stage receiving a Brit Award from Jimmy Page and meeting Lars from Metallica, being able to go out and tour America. And it just progressed and progressed and progressed from there until, yeah, we then had to then come up with another album <laughs> after that. And we we were on such a journey at that time that we re- really didn't think about what we had to do next. And so doing that was quite daunting. And we didn't really enjoy the process so much because it wasn't like the first record. All of a sudden, we knew people were going to hear it. Mm. And we had to do what we did again, but make it slightly different or else. And so... Mm, the pressure. We had a lot of pressure, yeah. And we didn't really talk about it. We um, We just kind of got on with it. It's not uncommon for bands to feel the pressure on their sophomore album. With How Did We Get So Dark, Royal Blood proved that they could expand on their signature sound. The album debuted at the top of the UK charts and sealed their status as a bona fide rock band. In America, I Only Lie When I Love You, their second single went to number one on the Billboard rock charts. Ben if the album's ominous title, How Did We Get So Dark, might have been in reference to politics or Brexit or anything more sinister that Mike might have been going through at the time. But apart from Mike's own personal relationship, which seems to be what the song is about, Ben didn't think there was anything else. Yeah, it was the up and downs of relationships, I guess, and finding humour in spots like that. Mm. I think you guys talk a lot about things that you guys do for a laugh in the studio, like putting the most ridiculous, longest drum fill and then it becomes a serious thing because your record label then comes down, listen to it and go, mm-hmm. And then you go, yeah, let's put that in there. Yeah. That's obviously something, the chemistry of the two of you that works, you know, it takes up the pressure a little bit by just being able to laugh together. Absolutely. Typhoons is a very different album from their previous two. It's not that pure rock sound that they made their name in. Now it had a dance edge to it, and there was no denying that Mike was going through a more turbulent time than anybody could have predicted.
you know, when I first heard the couple of tracks that got given to me, I was like, whoa, this is great. This is like, you know, electro disco without forsaking any of those rock riffs that we love and you can dance to it. And I was like, this is fantastic stuff. But when I listened to the whole album, like with a lyric sheet, I'm like, Mike was really going through like a personal reckoning. In part, it's almost terrifying you know like some of the lyrics when you get a sense of it and you don't when you listen to one song just on its own but when you listen to all together you're like it's coming at you Mm -hmm. over and over again in, in different ways as well um did you have that sense when you heard the songs that he was writing or did the pandemic in some ways force it into a a different direction sort of like more reflective in terms of lyrically well lyrically he only started writing the lyrics really after he got sober Mm. and it gave him a lot of clarity and confidence really to go so personal and so deep into looking back at that situation and being able to write about that. Um, But with the music being so euphoric, Mm. it kind of gave us, you would expect the music to have lyrics like about partying and dancing, being on the dance floor and, aren't we having a great time? But he's writing about storms in his own head and um, this repetitive motion of not being able to get out of a situation and not feeling that you can get out of something and knowing what's coming next. What was like your relationship with everything that was going on? Because obviously you know him so well, but at the same time, you didn't, it didn't seem to me like you felt it was your place to go, hey, Mike, you do this, you should clean up your act. It's like, no, he'll figure it out and he has to. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not my place to say it. It's my place to be a friend and, and support him through whatever decisions he's made. And to be honest, I didn't see anything real bad happening to him until after he was sober and I realised that, that he was unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the times that we were having were great. They were fun. But it was when he was on his own and it was after all those partying things that he would carry on and go too far and get lost in himself, really, not knowing when to stop. The things that some mm-hmm. people don't see. Yeah. And also, it's, it's not it's not my place to tell him to stop. It Like, I care for him an awful lot. And if I... If I really saw something really damaging, like obviously damaging happening, but also I was living the same life with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and and I was coming away feeling great and being able to stop and coming back to my my girlfriend back home and and seeing all my friends. And it was a lot different. And he went for a really dark stage, I think. A lot of the stuff that was going on in Mike's head, the sort of storm, as it seems, you weren't completely aware of at the time, right? It's like maybe you saw a couple of signs here and there, but hey, you guys are all having a good time and that's what you do, right? You're in this lifestyle and you're traveling around. And then when you heard these lyrics coming out, did you have a sense of, hey, this is going to be a different kind of an album or this is like, oh, maybe he was really unhappy there. There's a whole lot there that I didn't see, but it's coming through now. Did it hit you that way? Or was it just, no, it's just a good song? I think it It was only after he had got a lot better that it, it we realised 
well I realized mm. um and the lyrics were just things that I think he felt that he could write about being in a place a different place that he's at now kind of more reflective of of those things so I think when you're going through those things it's hard to have clarity and it's hard to articulate what you want to say because you're going through it it's only when you come out of those times where you can look back upon it and reflect and feel more comfortable to write about those things and they yeah they're real personal things that you know happened and i think he's really brave in what he's saying and coming out with and and also it's really true and it makes the songs feel like they're come alive a bit more because he's he's writing about things that really happened yeah i mean it's also interesting that both of you talk about it so openly because and i i think i read somewhere that um in an interview oh i think it was the enemy one where he actually said i feel like a responsibility to somebody else who might be going through it to to talk about these things and i've spoken to other bands and they do feel like especially for guys there is this sort of you know we don't talk about mental health enough maybe we have been recently for men there is this sort of um there's this sort of stigma to live this rock and roll lifestyle and i guess mike maybe felt the pressure without really you know people don't tell you this in advance do they like hey this is what you're supposed to look out for when you're going to be a rock star i think we found that since the start of the band with everything that rock and roll looked like back then is is nothing that is rock and roll right now for instance you would from the clothes that people wear to the drink and drugs that people take to how people treated women how you know that's totally changed and for the good mm. and people are being more aware of these things and how those things can really mess you up and and mess other people up as well and i think what the responsibility of you know putting your hand up and saying at this is the way that i want to live my life and i think is more rock and roll and you know it's it's easy to go along with tradition and cliche mm. and yeah i think definitely for for mike he, he stuck his hand up and was like actually i'm stepping off this thing it was you know what what his lifestyle was was damaging mm. and it was damaging him and we can see it also with our friends how it can damage them we have a responsibility not only as a friend but because we have a bigger audience yeah to to stick up our hand and say you know what you can stop those things take control of your life and you can change it for the better and that's exactly what mike did he understood that he was struggling with alcohol and drug abuse the song boilermaker takes its name from a cocktail a shot of whiskey dropped into a glass of beer in a radio interview, Mike explained that the Boilermaker is a horrible drink and if you're drinking it, you know things are going wrong. 
in the song, Mike alludes to being depressed and how drinking had become a solution for him. The track was produced in LA by Josh Homie of Queens of the Stone Age. In an interview with the NME, Mike revealed how pivotal that track was. It was the first song they recorded after Mike got sober, and it was also the first song they recorded for the album. Working with Josh Homie also gave them a newfound confidence that allowed them to later push the limits of rock while folding in the euphoria of disco. At that early stage, was there still kind of apprehension to like, but we don't do disco? We didn't really think about it, to be honest. It kind of just came out of us. It was a direction that we weren't searching for, but when it revealed itself, kind of felt fun and it felt right to do. I can only say that listening to disco music ourselves when we came off stage and we would have parties, Mm. something of that was ingrained in us and there was a feeling of excitement and enjoyment and fun that sometimes was missing from our set maybe Mm. and so because rock music and some of our music's quite hard hitting and it's quite almost angry and maybe angry is not the word maybe motivated is the Mm. word Mm -hmm. to use like a lot of people often say that they listen to it in the gym or they listen to it on a run and it really encourages them in, in, in that way. And that's great. And I think we've done that and we've, we can do that. But with this one, it, it makes you move a little bit different. It makes you feel something a little bit more joyful. definitely has that feel of being in a club. Ironically, Mike had written it on his own during the UK's first lockdown. He couldn't meet up with Ben, so he used drum machines instead. Most of the songs start from drums for us. It's, or, or definitely a rhythmic aspect, either if that's you know, some kind of rhythm on the guitar that then translates to drums or works with drums. 
And it's all about the beat and the feel to get the song started. Lyrics for us are being written throughout, but always come after mm. into the music. Only kind of when you're recording them is when you hear accents and stuff that you want to have in the lyrics. But drums for me, it starts with them. It's quite tribal and kind of the first thing you lay down. I feel like a beat is a thing that really sparks off where the song's going to end up, mm. really, and how it travels through the song is through mm-hmm. the beat. Do you wind up, like, how many hours a day do you wind up practicing in terms of drums? Because it seems like so much like a like an athlete. Yeah, definitely when we're touring. Um, I don't play a lot of drums when I'm, like, I hardly really practice, which is a terrible thing because I really should. But I like to create and I like to create with Mike. And as a drummer, I don't have a, a massive ego on parts. So mm. Mm. I care more about, our music together than having a cool drum part. I have no problem with Mike coming up with parts and coming up with drum beats and coming up with things because when I play them, it's it's me playing them and they get adapted just that slightly mm. because I'm a real person playing a drum kit instead of some some program or Mike playing them. And so I think it's about being open-minded with with those things and taking you on a journey really and seeing where songs end up bring you back to the album was there any one song that kind of was that journey if you can pinpoint a specific moment um i think limbo is a great example Mm -hmm. limbo was a song that mike had programmed two drum beats together and and i thought it was just amazing and then when i went to play them on drums i was like how how is this done because obviously it's done by a computer. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of try to imitate it and do my best version of it, which then became cooler because it's a human playing it and it's a human feel and, and the human energy to it. Yeah, so that was quite a fun process of doing that. But then, you know, the song ends with this build and it's just, I I think it was just Mike thinking, what would Ben like to do at this part? Mm. And he got it exactly right, just thrashing out. But then after that bit, it goes to this like weird underwater, like filtered sound, which we've never done anything like this before. And it's more done in, I guess, dance music. Mm. But it was done on a an electronic drum. And so it was something that I'm like, well, I don't play electronic drums, but you have to be like, why not? Why don't you be a bit more open-minded about this and, and try something new? And Mike challenges me with those kind of things. And and um, so, yeah, and then it comes back in with this crazy beat that he made. Yeah, it's just a lot of fun to work in these ways. 
What do you think is like the kind of secret sauce to the two of you working together? It's basically our friendship and how we interpret music together. And we have such a close relationship that musically we know where each other's going to go. It's not just one of us going, I think this. It's both of us being on the same page. And that's what really makes our connection work. And the creativity of us comes from that. Like he pushes me so much with my drums, but he doesn't have a vision of what I should be doing. It's almost like we have no vision of, of what we're doing and we're experimenting. But when you push each other, you come out with some amazing new things and new sections to songs and new rhythms and new guitar sounds. And just our relationship together is what makes Royal Blood, Royal Blood. Why do you do what you do? You've been really loving music and the drums since you were like, you know, knee high to a grasshopper and you've been involved in bands like for so much of your teenage years and then, you know, you guys are so successful. But what keeps you doing this? I feel like I have quite a creative soul in me and I like to out of nothing, just out of something in my head or something in my limbs, let go and do something wild and create something. Whether that be something on the drums or something on a piano or something, you know, it. I could, I'm mm. not a piano player, but mm. if I set a piano, it, who knows what's going to come out? Could It could be terrible, but if it's terrible, there's something creative about, something about trying something mm. um, which is quite liberating and I do this because I I love music and I I have a passion to play music to people and um, just because mm-hmm. from, from music I've heard myself it mm-hmm. gives me a feeling and it gives me um a drive, whether that be a fast song that makes me want to go and, you know, go out and get drunk and go and tear down the town or something that makes me feel a bit somber mm. and makes me reflect, you know, mm. I think music's just so powerful and it's just something that I really respect and I really enjoy. And that's why I do it. And I guess now you also have this platform that you guys are choosing to use it in such a positive way which I don't know if you ever considered that when you started out yeah of course not because we didn't have a platform we had no idea what was going to happen with our band and still don't you know we had no idea that this album would get the success it has done and hit number one because it's a different album to what we put out back in 2014 and 2017 it's a different record it's got different songs it's got different feel to it Royal Blood's always on a journey of what to do next and what level to go after this. When they were recording Typhoons, they knew that some of their diehard rock fans might be put off by a disco-leaning album or using electro elements from dance music. It seemed like the antithesis of what Royal Blood is about. But they did it anyway. And the last track on Typhoons is a quiet ballad called All We Have Is Now. It doesn't sound like anything in their repertoire. Mike plays the piano instead of the bass. Yet it feels natural and maybe a sign 
of where they'll go next. listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Ben Thatcher from Royal Blood. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Zane Samari and Ness Smith-Sevdoff. Media and graphic design by Jenny Woodward, with additional help from Wendy Redfern. Deborah Davis-Hahn is our resident legal eagle. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfern. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other listeners find us. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time.